Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18 and extending all the way to verse 23. Please give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleeve to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, having heard your word read in the presence of your people, we now with expectation look into its truth, and we ask that you would guide us, we ask that you would lead us, we want most of all to see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to know from him what it is that we are to be. Come now and meet with us and encourage us and strengthen us from this word, that we might glorify you in all things. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's a great joy to be back with you. Uh, missed being in the Cornerstone family last week together. I was worshiping a couple of states over in Louisiana, a little town that some of you have probably been to, Lafayette, Louisiana. Yes, I ate very good while I was there. It was marvelous food, marvelous people. But most importantly about that time, if you were here and you read maybe my pastoral notes last week, you knew that I was serving and partnering with a congregation that we support, a new church plant in Lafayette, Louisiana named Parish Church. The pastor there is Reverend Josh Kynes. He's been a long friend of mine, and it was a couple of years ago that he and his family, his wife and six children struck out for the purposes of seeing a new Reformed and Presbyterian work started in Lafayette. Now, Lafayette's about 225,000 people, and there is no Reformed and Presbyterian church in its context. And so there was a need for a witness such as Parish Church to be raised up in the midst of that city. 
And while I was there, I got a chance to meet with some of his leaders. I got a chance to preach on Sunday morning to the congregation that the Lord has been raising up. And I got to hear some of the amazing stories of what the Lord has been doing through the power of his gospel there through Parish Church. I got to meet a man by the name of Daryl. Daryl stumbled in one morning to Parish Church actually looking for something else when a worship service was going on. I say stumbled because he was inebriated when he showed up that morning. And one of the leadership team took him under his arm and met with him. And he sat with him throughout the service. And then afterwards, they began to walk with Daryl. Daryl was there that morning as part of the the setup and cleanup team for Paris Church. Because over the last year, he's come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord has done an amazing work in his life. I met Mike while I was there. Mike is dying of hepatitis C. Um, He is not in a good place. Uh, He was a part of the prayer team, though, there that morning because over the last year, he has also come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the first time in all of his life he's been a part of a loving fellowship full of relationships that are committed to seeing him grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was incredible being there with Daryl, being there with Mike, being there with others, seeing what it is that the Lord was doing in and through this local expression of the body of Christ. So I come back to you with my heart full, um, full of gospel stories, full of expectation of the power of the gospel, and with anticipation today of the Lord's work, even in our own midst here at Cornerstone. But one of the reasons I tell you those couple of stories regarding the work at Parish Church is to simply highlight the fact that it's the power of the gospel that brought forth that change. But the power of the gospel came through people, relationships, came through the body of Christ as God's ordained element through which the word of Christ would be proclaimed and through which the spreading of the gospel of Christ would come. That's what I saw. When I was at Parish Church, I saw people who were isolated, people who had been lonely, people who were marginalized, people who were put on the boundaries of the community and were more managed and put up with than ever related to. I saw those men and I saw those women coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ and being drawn into loving relationships in a way that some of them had never experienced before. Three weeks ago, when we looked at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, we saw that man and woman are created in the image of God. That's the language that's used at the opening of Genesis 1, 26. And when I had the privilege of preaching on that passage, I gave you three R's for understanding what the image of God is all about. The first R was reflect. When we are created in the image of God, we are called to reflect the character of God. The second R was represent. We are God's representation in the world. And as we are sent into the world, we reveal or express the very presence of God in the world. The third R was rule. God has asked us to take dominion to be fruitful, to multiply, to subdue the earth, to act, as it were, on the behalf of God in the world. Reflect, 
represent, and rule. Now, I don't know how many of you picked up on the fact, but I left out a really critical R in our dialogue of Genesis 1, to 28. It's because I wanted to talk about it in this message. It's the R of relationship. It's the R of relationship. Because if there's anything that's most critical about what it means to be made in the image of God, it's this R. It's the R of relationship. If we could summarize what it is that God is teaching us here in Genesis 2 and also reflected in Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, is that we are made for relationship because nothing is more fundamental to God than relationship. Nothing is more fundamental to God than this reality, that He is a God who is in relationship. Now, as we look at the passage of Scripture this morning, I want to look at the nature of these relationships under three headings. I want you to see first the need for relationship in everybody's life. The need for relationship in everybody's life. I want you to see, secondly, the power of relationship. How it is that relationship is intended to wield a strength in the course of everybody's life. And I want you to see, thirdly, the differentness of the variety of relationships that we have are here for a purpose. The differentness of the kinds of relationships that we have are all designed for a purpose. Okay, so I want to start with this need for a relationship. Now it's implied here in verse 18 at the opening of our text, isn't it? Look at it with me. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, as we read that text, many of us are very familiar with it. We've heard it many times before, but I want you to see as a reader, if you're just working your way through the book of Genesis, you've worked through Genesis 1, you're in Genesis 2, this is shocking language. We've seen God create one day after another. We've seen Him say, it is good, it is good, it is good. We've seen Him get to day 6 in the creation of man, and He went to the superlative, He took it up a notch, and He said, it is very good as He looks at the creation of man. And then we get to 2.18, and for the very first time, in the Bible, we're told that something is not good. And the not good of 2.18 is the fact that Adam is alone. That he has no relationship. Now, now when you look at that from, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, this aloneness of Adam, some of you may draw the conclusion and say, well, I, I like being alone. I don't think of it as a problem. In fact, I could use a little aloneness in my life. I'm surrounded by people. They're suffocating me. I need to get out. I need some aloneness. It's not talking about never having any time alone. It's talking about isolation. It's talking about being alone. There was no relationships. There was no fellowship. There was no, as it were, reflection of the Trinitarian God. Well, now I just went deep on you. 
the Trinitarian God. Why did I throw the Trinitarian God out there? Well, maybe you'll remember, and if you have your Bibles, you might even turn back to Genesis chapter 1, and you'll remember the creation of man. Genesis 1.26, there's a really sudden shift in the text in Genesis 1.26 that indicates for you the significance of the plurality of God in relationship to the creation of man. If we were to go back and read through all of the creation days, we won't, don't get worried. If we were to do that, you would read, and God said in the singular, let there be light. And God said, let the heavens be separated from the earth. Let, and God said, let the birds of the air be created and the fish of the sea. And You'd go through each of it, and in the singular we would hear, and God said, and he would create. In verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, all of that changes. In that moment where God prepares for the creation of man and woman, we read a shift in the pronoun that moves from God in the singular to... Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now what's going on here? Well, I'll tell you what's going on here. The Bible is showing us the biblical teaching and nature of God in that word that theologians have coined known as the Trinity. Now the reason I note it for you is because We're kind of talking about the creation of man and we're talking about the creation of woman and it's the only place in all of the created narrative where God moves from singular to plural and it's when he creates you and me. And that's noteworthy. He moves from singular to plural to teach us about what it is that we are to image, what it is we are to reflect, that we are not siloed. Solo, isolated individuals, but we've been called to reflect the plurality of Almighty God. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a simple definition of the Trinity. There really isn't a simple definition, but let me give you a simple definition of the Trinity. The Trinity is one God in terms of his being, his nature, or his essence, but that one God exists in three persons. Those three persons are known as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now the reason that's important, and there's a lot that we could say about it, is that the Christian conception of God is utterly unique from every other conception of God that you will find in all of history or in any present day religion. It's not like the Eastern notions of God where there is no individuality. That all of that's simply an illusion. And that God is simply a powerful force. He's not a person to be connected to or related to. It's also not like the Western tradition of individualism. Or the pantheism of the Greek gods who are always warring and enemies with each other. Various conceptions of God have been given where God is singular only or plural only. But the Christian God is both and. In different senses and in different ways. In his being, he is one, but in the oneness of his being, he's always been in community. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you may be asking yourself, why is that important? (laughs) Well, it's important because relationship is the way in which love is actually experienced and displayed. 
the foundation of the Christian conception of who God is as revealed in Scripture shows us that God didn't have to create to love. Instead, God as an overflow of his being, already in love with himself, overflows in love as he creates heaven and earth, sea and sky, male and female. We are a product of the loving community of Almighty God. Now that's really important to see because when we're told that we are created, let us, in the image of this plurality, what it's trying to say to you and me is that you and I can't do this thing called life. We can't be the people we're called to be without each other. It's built in to who God is. And because it's built into who God is, there's no way as image bearers of God, we should expect anything less for us. Now this deals with all of so many practical situations. You see this highfalutin theology that we're doing around the Trinity here actually is as practical as potatoes in so many ways. I mean, do you struggle with any conflicts in your life? Well, conflict is actually a kind of Trinitarian heresy. It it means that you're not yet, in the fallenness of where you are, able to model the image that you were actually created in. Do you ever feel lonely? It's actually a Trinitarian heresy. The image that you were created in was never to be lonely. But in your fallenness, you feel alone and isolated. These very common issues that we face, all of us right now, faces and names come to mind, histories of collateral damage done in relationships begin to permeate our memories and we begin to realize, wait, we were made for relationship. Our, own, our lives exist in relationship. There's no way we can be who it is. We are in relationship, but relationship causes the most pain. It causes us the most difficulties. It's the thing that in very many cases is the thing most difficult in our lives. When you look at the story of the unfolding of the Bible and the creation of man, what you're beginning to see is from its various, very beginning of the Christian story, we were a people never to be marked simply by you and me. We were a people to be marked by us. We were a people to be marked by us. Which I think brings up A very important point that we see embedded here in the text. This whole passage is concerned with relationship. I mean, after we're told that it's not good that Adam is alone, verse 18, notice what God says. He says, because it's not good that Adam's alone, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. We're going to come back to that language in just a second. But before he makes that helper, which we see at the very end of our section in verses 21 to 23... He brings to Adam all of the animals and he has him name all of the animals. Now there's a lot that we can say about the exercise of the rule of God or the representation of God here in the actions that Adam has taken, but that's really not the point of the passage. You see, in verse 18 he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for Adam, but before I do, I need to show Adam through the whole world that he doesn't have a helper fit for him yet. I'm going to bring every animal... He's going to see male zebra and female zebra. He's going to see male rabbit and female rabbit. He's going to see male dog and female dog. And he's going to get to the end and he's going to see male Adam and 
right. It's a process of elimination. He's training Adam, as it were, into the reality of relationship. He's showing him as he goes through that he needs a helper fit for him. As he names the animals, none of them will do. None of them are the type of what he needs as a helper who's fit for him. How do we know that's the case? Because it says it there in verse 20. He starts out and he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for you, but go name all the animals. And then it says in verse 20, and there wasn't found for him a helper fit for him. Oh, so we were looking for one. Oh, okay. And we didn't find one. And so we begin with the special creation of woman. But it arises out of this poignant recognition by God to lead Adam to the point that he must discover that he is in need of relationship. He is in need of relationship. Now, he is in need of a particular relationship. The relationship that you might think that Adam needs here is a relationship of, of companion. But if it, was an, if it was a relationship merely of companion, couldn't he get a dog? I mean, he is man's best friend. Uh, he is, by the way, in relationship with God. That's a pretty important relationship. He's got fellowship at one level to speak of it, but he doesn't have this like-minded, this same but different kind of relationship that he really needs that would come under the language of fitting helper. He doesn't have that. But what we see is that this relationship that actually Adam needs is not merely this companionship, this fellowship, this ability to spend some time and share the company of another. It's a relationship wherein Adam's deficiencies are met. Adam's deficiencies are met. You see, Adam is alone. And he can't do life alone. How do we know that? Well, what's the language? The language is helper. If, if he was crafting merely a companion, wouldn't he say friend? <laughs> he, he doesn't. He says the language of helper. What does the language of helper just assume? Before we even dive into the language of helper, what does it assume? It assumes Adam needs help. He's not able to do whatever it is he's called to do on his own. He needs someone there beside him. He is a man who alone can't do what it is that God has called him to do. And so he needs the power, the help, the strength of another. You see, this passage is not just teaching us about the need for relationship. It's teaching us about the power we gain in relationship. You, you know the experience of being in relationship with someone when they saddle up alongside you in the moment of your weariness as you're trying to get done what it is that you need to get done and maybe you're hitting a wall and you don't know how it is to move forward and someone shows up and that person has new ideas, has fresh energy, throws in their weight and lot with you and all of a sudden don't you find yourself more invigorated, more strengthened to accomplish what's there? You have a helper Someone who comes alongside and, and strengthens you, helps you to accomplish that which you wouldn't be able to do on your own. Because now, as it were, they're an extension of you and you're an extension of them. And together you're a team, you're a partnership. And as we read from Ecclesiastes, two are better 
than one. The strength that comes from that relationship, the resources that are now at your disposal are much deeper and much bigger than they've ever been. We know that's at work here because of the language of the choice of the scripture of helper. Now, let's admit that language of helper has sometimes gotten a bad rap. More than one scholar has seen it as a diminutive kind of servile function, speaking disrespectfully of the creation of woman. But listen, to say such a thing is just to be ignorant of how the word is actually used in the Scripture. You see, the word here for helper is the word ezer, the Hebrew word ezer. It's used all throughout Moses' writing in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And most often when it is used, you know where the word helper is in reference to? God. God is the easer of Israel. Exodus chapter 18. God is the helper of Israel and he delivers them out of the slavery of Egypt. Well, let's think about that. If God is the helper of Israel and he delivered them out of Egypt, what kind of things did he do to deliver them out of Egypt? Plagues, whirlwinds, Parted waters, destroyed armies. I don't know about you, but we're talking about strength here. This is the terminology for power. The kind of relationship that Adam needs in this moment is someone who can accomplish something with him and on his behalf that he cannot accomplish for himself. That's the image of the power of relationship, and we know how that works. Of course we know how that works in marriage. We'll look at that in the weeks to come. But you know how that works in all kind of teaming activities, whether it's in sports or whether it's in business, whether it's in the context of parachurch ministries or education. When someone comes alongside that offers something that, that you have or that you don't have and partners with you in it, better and bigger things are able to be done, they're able to be accomplished. And the reason is, in those moments, we're becoming the us. We are together imaging God. You see, we could say it in two different ways. You alone image God, but you alone can't fully image God. Because you need others in order to do that. There needs to be a community that's involved in your life so that the plurality, the usness of who God is can be shown in and through us. Now, boy, doesn't this just throw rugged individualism of Western culture under the bus? So much for the self-glorified cowboy Western hoe image where we've got the world by the tail. We need no one. I'm the self-made man that I've always dreamed that I would be. You know what the scripture is actually saying with an image like that in relationship to the image of God? It's saying to think that way and to act that way is not just wrong, it's dehumanizing. It makes you less than what you are. Because to be human is at its very nature to be in need of a helper, to be in need of others. It's the only thing that's not good about the created order. Now, this is critical, friends, as we walk through life and as we build a community here at Cornerstone to begin to understand what it is that we're talking about. 
This means that the more you persist in living a life that says, I can do it on my own, I'll get my act together, I'll keep figuring it out without anybody's help, and I'll continue to mow myself into the ground and fall week after week after week and act like it's not the case, you continually deny the image of God in you. You continue to deny, to forsake, the very shape, the very form of the usness of who it is that God has made you to be. It means that the moment you say, I can't do it all, I need somebody to help, is the moment you start moving towards who it is you've been called to be. There is embedded within this passage humility. There's embedded within this passage need. There's embedded within this passage the fact that you are a part of me and I am a part of you and you can't be who you are without me and I can't be who I am to be without you. It's embedded in the nature in which God has created the world in which we live. And so the question that we must ask ourselves at this point before we move on is do you tell anyone at any time that you're in need. Do you live this way? Do, do, you, do people know what you need? Do people come to you as a person they can share their needs? Do people look at you as a helper? Do you look to them as a helper, as a resource? Let, let's take a step back. That's bold. Let, do you ever ask for prayer? That would kind of indicate you have need. Do people ever come to you with prayers? To indicate that you're a kind of person they can come to for help. I'm going to take it by the eerie silence in the room. That this is our struggle. That this is our struggle. That we have more bought in to Americanism than biblical theology. We've more bought into, I can do it myself, thank you. I'd rather not let you in. I'd rather not reveal the chinks in my armor. I'd rather not act like I need help. I'd rather, as I've been always told, to keep my act together and to fake it until I make it. Except you're not making it, that is. And at the core of the biblical text is telling us that you were never supposed to make it on your own. You never were. Like it's not even a product of the fall. We're not at the fall yet, friends. This is just normal human beings. Unfallen, in glory, with God. They need each other. Why? Because your life is not about you. It's about reflecting God. And who is he? Us. He's us. He's we. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't you see? The Father does things that the Son doesn't do. And the Son does things that the Father doesn't do. And the Holy Spirit does things that the Father and the Son don't do. But they all do them together as one. They are a community. And he's made you, us, a community. And the goal of it is not to act like a heresy. The goal is to act like biblical theology. 
that we would show our dependence upon one another and we would cry out for help. Some of you right now really need to hear that. You know who you are. You sit in silence week after week with your soul collapsing inside of you, faking a smile till you get to the back door. The opposite is what is being described here in this passage. If you are wanting to experience the nature of who it is that God has made you to be as a human being, much less a Christian who recognizes their utter dependence on Jesus, then it's got to start with raising your hand and saying, I need help. That's your path to becoming a human being. Now, in the context of this, the need for relationships, the power that's found in relationships, I want you to see, Tim Keller makes a great point of this in one of his messages, which I couldn't find this week, would have liked to have heard it. The difference that you see between the helper and the one who needs help. There's a difference in our relationships. Let me just note this from just an anecdotal place. Have you noticed that not every relationship you have is identical? And that certain people are able to bring out certain things in relationship with you? I've been told that my my wife tells me she can tell when I've been with certain friends. Certain sides of me show up. Because they bring them out. And that's the design of that relationship. That relationship has a feel about it. It has a resource to it. It has a life to it. Other relationships do different things. They build into our lives differently. What's interesting about this text is that word in verse 18, fitting helper, that word fitting could sound like someone identical to you, but it's the exact opposite of that. A fitting helper is someone who literally is opposite of you. Woman, who is being created in the context of this passage, is not like man. Hello? She is opposite of him. She is a fitting helper. Now, we read that and we can extrapolate a number of things relating to marriage and sexuality, things of which we will address in the weeks to come. But what I want you to see right now is our tendency is to think that we need to find relationships with people who are like us. That's our default position. I just want an affinity group. I want people who dress like me and talk like me and like the things that I like so that I can be not stretched in any way in relationship. So I don't have to grow. In other words, I kind of want a church that's not a church. I kind of want people who are all alike rather than different. I'd rather have an identical twin than actually an opposite fitting helper. When the passage of Scripture is actually teaching us is the very nature of the Trinity is that the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father and the Holy Spirit is not the Father and the Son, but together in their differences is the power and the unity of how it is that God has been made. And those, it's not surprising... That the more we surround ourselves with people who are exactly like us, the less we change. It's not surprising. If you create an echo chamber where you don't get any other voice other than the ones that just will tell you exactly what you would always say anyway, then how do you expect to get beyond where you are? 
Now, what's embedded in this idea of opposite is actually the potential of challenge. Meaning that the community won't come just because we cheer for the same SEC team. Right? The community comes when there's a recognition that you have something that I need and I have something that you need and we have been made different and I approach you not as someone who is not like me but as someone who is multi-splendored differently than me in the image of God of which I need to get to know. You know, that's actually what's happening in marriage, which we'll again talk about in the days to come. Very often, right, it's very surprising. Couple gets married. They find out that the other one is different. Right? And then they go, I, I didn't know. I mean, they're different. They're different. And you go, yeah. I mean, opposite. <laughs> it's here at Genesis 2. They're opposite of you. And then it becomes a question, of, well, this is not what I ex- expected it to, to be. I, I thought it would be, I, I thought there would not be that opposite, that feel of, oh, there's something added that I need to grow into now. That is going to stretch me. It's going to call me beyond where I'm at. Which in fact, that's exactly what's built into the language of helper. They're bringing a power into the midst of your life. And you're bringing a power into the midst of their life. That's going to shake things up for the better. It's going to move things beyond where it is it would be if you're on your own in the status quo. What we see in the context of this differentness in a needful and power relationship is we're beginning to build a picture of what really the church is all about. A people with many needs for relationship, with all kinds of helpers, differently gifted, with all kinds of spiritual gifts, all kinds of dispositions and proclivities, all of which we need in a variety of ways. And those differences are actually powerful to the unity that brings change for the whole and for us individually. But even at a deeper level, as it's a picture of the church and it's a reason why we're called the body of Christ, we're called the family of God, is that we can't exist as it were without each other. And if we're going to grow into who it is we're going to be, we have to give ourselves over to each other. But how is that going to work when when there's always problems? There's always rubs. There's always brokenness. There's always division. And you see, that's why in the midst of this text, you actually see that we need a certain type of relationship post the fall that is powerful and is different from any other. We need a relationship with Christ. We need a relationship with Christ. You see, post the fall, what actually happened was not just that we broke laws, though though we did that in the eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was that we fractured relationships. The scripture speaks of the fall of man as alienation, as estrangement distanced but between who we are and who God is and distanced between each other. Didn't we see that in Adam and Eve, the moment in their sin where they had to go run for clothes? 
Aren't we seeing estrangement? Aren't we seeing that Adam in relationship to the ground deals with the estrangement now that the ground's going to fight back as he tries to till it? Aren't we seeing that in in, uh, the woman with Eve, the pain that she's going to experience in fulfilling her calling and childbirth is now going to fight back, as it were, against her? There's going to be tension. And don't we see by the end of Genesis chapter 3 when God puts in the cherubim with the flaming sword and he ushers them east of Eden, we're told that he drives them out from the garden. What are we seeing? Brokenness in relationship. We're seeing division. We're seeing estrangement. This is what litters our family history. And this is what litters far too often our church history. And so we need someone who understands our need for relationship, who has a power to restore, but who is enough like us and enough different from us to be able to bring us back into the relationships that we really need. You see, that's who Jesus is. You see, when Jesus came wrapped in human flesh, he came as the second person of the Trinity who had known for all eternity that beautiful interrelationship of community in love. And he came making himself like us, becoming for us a helping, fitting servant. And when he came, he lived a perfect life, which is absolutely not like us. That's pretty different. But he did it like us in that he was in human flesh. So he did it on our behalf as our representative. And when he got to the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins, as he was on the cross, do you know what he experienced for the very first time with his father? Estrangement. Alienation. As he hung there receiving the penalty for our sins, all of the fractured divisions in relationship, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nowhere else in all the Bible does Jesus refer to his Father as God because in that moment he didn't feel anything like a father. And in that moment, he felt the utter estrangement and the forsakenness that was rightfully ours, that we know in relationship. And when he was going through the depth of that estrangement, he was simultaneously reconciling us through the power of his flesh, experiencing the division and the alienation and the estrangement so that we can hear from God, come unto me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We could hear from God, no more alienation, no more estrangement. Draw near to me, my son and my daughter. We could begin to hear from God the invitation into relationship. Because Jesus had experienced and paid for all of the division that we had wielded through our sin. Do you see at the end of the day, friends, the Christian life is not just reading your Bible and praying every day and coming to church and tipping God. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is a relationship. It's knowing and walking with the living God through Christ. That's what it is. And the moment it becomes something less than that, something reduced from the dynamic of the life and the love and the pulsating of what is that relationship, you'll begin to experience the alienation, the lack of joy, the loss of contentment. You'll begin to experience it differently because in that moment you're not relating 
you've now turned it into something else. A task to be done rather than a God to be loved. And friends, I don't know all of the ways in which the Lord may need to speak these words into your heart and life today, but I can pretty much be certain that one of the things he's calling each and every one of us today is to start raising our hands and saying, I'm in need of help. In a variety of ways. In a variety of ways. And some of us in this room who have never broke outside the comfort zones of our relationship, the Lord is calling us into something different. He's moving you away from the alienation and the loneliness that you have not been able to escape through entertainment, through more money, through more pleasure. There's something in your soul that's screaming, I want to be known and loved with others and with God. There's something in there deep. And you won't outrun it. You will not outrun it. Because it is too true to be outrun. It must be fulfilled. And that it is in the invitation to come and to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, we ask that you would draw us into relationship with Christ. And that you would do so in such a manner that we are drawn into relationship with one another. And that for some of us, for the very first time, we begin to experience and to know the community that you have really called us to. Father, forgive us for all of the ways that we have opted to live solitary and siloed lives, self-protective, unfulfilled, shallow, and discontent. We ask that you would crack the shell of this pseudo-life and you would draw us into the power of relationship with Christ through one another and to put it as a burden on the hearts of everyone who has that sense of place where they need to cry out for help and have not for so long. Father, make it inescapable until they do. Because you can't stand to see them alone. For you have made them for relationship. Lord, tend this truth in our hearts. And shape us into a community that lives according the power of the community that is found in you. And let that community be a living, breathing, attractive force to a weary, worn, sad, and lonely world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Stand and sing together.